Pamela Reeves surprised herself and her publisher when she wrote a book that skyrocketed to the bestseller list. Over 600,000 copies of that book have been sold, the title of which is Faith Is. Here are some excerpts from the book. Faith is confidence in God's faithfulness to me. In an uncertain world, on an uncharted course, through an unknown future. Faith is recognizing that God is the Lord of time when my, my idea of timing doesn't agree with His. Faith is resting in the fact that God has an objective in leaving me on the scene when I feel useless to Him and a burden to others. Faith is claiming God's strength to accept and endure weariness, pain, decline, patiently. Faith is refusal to worry when I haven't the slightest clue as to what God would have me do with my life. Faith is something God will prove genuine by testing. Faith is cooperating with God in changing me rather than taking refuge and piously berating myself. Faith is realizing that God is the God of now, carrying out His purpose in every tedious, dull, boring, empty minute of my life. Faith is refusing the thinking that God loves and cherishes the popular, attractive, talented Christian more than He loves and cherishes plain old me. Faith is thanking God that when I am left with shattered plans, He has better plans. You can divide religious faith into three categories. There is saving faith, which is conversion. Knowing Christ, to know Christ, is to know God. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, lest any man should boast. And Galatians 3.26 says, We're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. To know God, one must faith His Son. That means that saving faith is trusting Jesus and Jesus only for salvation. Then there is doctrinal faith, which is illustrated by the Bible that I hold. Doctrinal faith is the truths Christians live by. And so Jude 3 says, I write to you that you would contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered once and for all to the saints. And Galatians 2, 6 and 7 says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him, having been rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. 
And then there is practical faith, illustrated by the the piece of paper on which one might write his worries, the things that concern him, an impending death, the possibility of the separation from a loved one, some business problem, things that worry you. Practical faith is believing that God will take care of me in the difficult times. And there are many illustrations of that in the New Testament. And Jesus' disciples were in a little boat on the sea one day and a storm came up and they panicked and and they said to Jesus, Don't you care that we perish? And Jesus rebuked the wind and calmed the waves and said, Oh, you people of little faith, Where is your confidence in me? And God came to Abraham when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife was 90, and he said, you're going to have a baby. Well, Sarah was going to have a baby. And Sarah laughed, but Abraham didn't. And the scripture said that Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We all live by faith. We live by faith and not by sight. Some of us do not understand that because we live completely in the sight dimension. We know nothing about living in the faith dimension, that is, in practical faith that God will provide and take care of us. Now from chapter 10 of of Hebrews to chapter 12, there is a little letter within a letter. And the theme of this letter within the letter is faith. I'm going to, on four successive weeks, preach on faith using this letter. And I don't want you to miss a one of them. So from chapter 10 to chapter 12, these this letter having to do with faith. Now most of us do not know what was going on in this time in which this letter was written. We need a date. The date was A.D. 64. What was happening during that time? Nero was the Caesar, was the emperor, and he was a vile, vicious, and wicked man. He was 27 years old in A.D. 64, and historians say that on July the 18th, A.D. 64, Rome burned, and it smoldered for days. And Nero was blamed for the catastrophe, for the burning of Rome, And an assassination plot was developed in order to take his life. And Nero got wind of it. He heard of it and he went into a tirade. He went into an outrage and he took it out on Christians whom he already hated with all of his being. And he started a bloodbath in Rome and he killed the Christians. Fox and Fox's Book of Martyrs says Nero... uh, refined cruelty in its highest degree. He sewed some of these Christians up in animal skins and turned wild dogs loose on them. Many of them were driven mad in the terror of that. Most of them were mutilated. And some Christians he covered with suits of wax, layers of wax, and he tied them to poles and set them up out in his garden and set them on fire so that these bodies of these 
Christians literally were wicks of candles that burned to light up his garden. That was what it was like when this letter was written. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of people who were martyred during that time. Some of their names may sound familiar. James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, stoned. Stephen stoned to death. Philip the Evangelist was imprisoned, scourged, and crucified. Matthew was slain in public in A.D. 60. James, the brother of Jesus, was beaten and his brains were bashed out with a club. Mark was dragged through the streets until he was dragged to pieces. Simon Peter was crucified upside down and Paul the apostle was beheaded in A.D. 64 or 65. Times were rough then. You think you've got it bad. Well, you may have it bad, but so did they. And so this writer writes to these people who were standing firm in their faith in this difficult time, and he writes to them, encouraging them not to shrink back, not to give in, not to give up. And he gives three directives in this passage that Lee read on how to stop shrinking back, how to stand firm in the faith and believe that God will take care of you in these difficult times. The first directive is found in verse 32, and it's this. Remember former times. Remember victories in the past in difficult times. Call to mind God's victories in difficult days and remind yourself of those victories. The word enlightened here does not just mean they were given revelation or knowledge. It's a word that means to be encouraged, to be invigorated, to be lifted up. And so he said, when times get difficult, you just remember how that when you were down, God came in the nick of time to lift you up. You recall those times when you were without strength and you thought you couldn't go on, and God just infused His strength into your life and enabled you to endure. Recall former times. I felt God leading me one time to, to leave a successful pastorate and do mission work on a faith basis. Some people from Spokane in the Northwest told me, they said, if you'll come and direct this pilot project, we'll secure underwriting for your salary. We'll get your support for you. So I resigned my church in the middle of the school year, moved my furniture into storage, took my children out of school and prepared to go into missions and found out that the that the support they sought and, and, and were confident of getting wasn't there. Now that'll scare you. I really came, uh, discovered in that time how, how deeply rooted in the Lord and faith my wife was in that day. And I was sitting in my study, you know, cleaning it out one day, getting ready to go. I didn't know where and do, I didn't know what with, with what support I uh, might have had in a few, in, in savings account. And I was thinking, now God, I believe that you called me into this. Didn't you call me into this? And this lady came up to my office, knocked on my door, came in. 
she was a member of my church there in Tulia, and she said, um, Brother Gerald, where did you go to college? And I said, I went to Hardin-Simmons University. She said, my husband um, of a few years back has passed away and left me with some money, an endowment, and I'd like to give this money to the university where you went to school in memory of you, in honor of memory, that's about right, in honor of you. And she said, I, I, I just have this endowment. Would you let me do that? Would you see to that arrangement? I said, hey, I'll tell you what I will do. Why don't we take that money at your permission and let's put it over here in this mission organization so that I can do mission work in the Northwest. And she said, well, that's fine. Whatever you want to do with it. And she left me a section of land in northern Texas. And times got rough for two and a half years after that. I worked without a salary. I, and I built a house, put money in the bank, lived on a salary all that time, just, just trusting God to take care of me. And when times would get rough, I just remember these former times. I just remember the day that God came through in the nick of time. Now the author says, some of you are suffering persecution. You're made a public theater reproach and spectacle. And some of you are suffering because you, you, are, you love these people and you're condemned by association. But when times get difficult, you just remember how God has come through in the nick of time to spare you. And if you let your eyes look down to verse 34, verses 34 and 32, you're going to see what these past victories were. Verse 34 says, You accepted joyfully the seizure, of your, the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and an abiding one. Victory number one was this. They understood that whenever you lose anything, because of your faith in God, He always replaces it with something better. Whenever you have to give up anything for God's sake, for the cause of Christ, He always gives you something better in its place. There have been times when I thought, if I didn't get this thing, if I didn't have that, I'd just die. If I lost this thing, I'd just die. Life wouldn't be worth living. And I didn't get it, and I didn't die. And in, retro, in retrospect, as I reflect back on it, everything that I've ever lost because of my faith in Christ, He's always given me something better to replace it. And it just might be that what He's saying is this, that oftentimes when you suffer some material or physical loss or the loss of some possession, it is only then that you discover what is of real value. I think that's what James was talking about when he said, Count it all joy when trials come. Let the rich man rejoice when trials come and he loses everything because he'll discover how poor he is. He doesn't have anything of lasting value. And let the poor man rejoice when trials come because he'll discover that the most important things in life are non-negotiable. The things in life that really count can't be bought with money. I'm talking about your faith and your family. I'm talking about your friendships. I'm talking about your health. These things are more important and they cannot be bought with a dollar. Dr. E. Stepp was in the office of Garden Kleiner 
one afternoon. He said, Gordon, tomorrow my son goes in for surgery. He's, he's crippled and can't walk, and he has to have this surgery. And the doctors say that the chances are about 60 to 40 that he'll not survive the surgery. And then Dr. Eastev looked at Gordon Kleiner and said, Gordon, I have it made. I have a successful uh, uh, teaching position here at the seminary. I have a beautiful home. I have a large salary and savings. I want you to know, Gordon, I'd give up everything I possess if I knew my little boy could run and play like other children. The things in life that really count are non-negotiable. And sometimes we don't really realize that until we suffer loss. And if you look back up in verse 32, you'll see the reason or the, the, the cause of the second victory. Look at verse 32. But remember the former times when after having been enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Look at the order. Look at the sequence. Notice that. Did you catch that? It was after he had been strengthened that he endured suffering. Look at the sequence and the order. The strength for the suffering preceded the suffering. The resources for the need precedes the need. That's the way God is. That's the way He's always been. That's the way He always will be. He's never surprised when some problem comes to us because before the need ever arises in your life, the, the resources for that need have already been provided. Before there ever was a sinner, there was a Savior. He was slain before the foundation of the world. Before there was a sin, there was a salvation. Before there was a need in your life or in the life of this church, there was a provision for that need. So if you have a need in your life, you can just thank God for it, for that need is the assurance that God has already provided the resources for it. Recall the farmer times. The second directive in how to stop from shrinking is to endure with boldness and confidence the test. Verse 35, he said, don't throw away your confidence. Now, that's an interesting word. It means to dig up by the roots and throw it away. It means to take something that's been there before and just cast it aside. Don't throw away your confidence. This is a runaway society and people are copping out and bailing out on responsibilities in the home and in business and in the church. I read somewhere recently that one of the best nonfiction bestsellers is a book entitled Runaway Wives. This sociologist points out in this book that 10 years ago for every wife, for every woman that ran out on her marriage, on her home, 500 men did that. And today, for every man who runs away, there are two women who do. Stuart Briscoe has a little book entitled, What Works When Life Doesn't? And he tells that one night before the worship service, a group of teenage boys came into his office and they said, Dr. Briscoe, we want you to meet Tommy here. And he met Tommy, this stranger. And he said, Tommy wants to go to Texas. They were in Illinois. I can't imagine why anybody would want to go to Texas from Illinois to you 
He said, Tommy wants to go to Texas. Will you announce tonight in the service if anybody's going to Texas and give Tommy a ride, he'd appreciate it. Stuart Briscoe said, you know, I, I said, I'll be glad to do that, but the chances that there's somebody in the service going to Texas to give Tommy a ride are pretty nil. He said, I got to talking, Tommy, and I found out he's running away. His father and mother divorced. His stepfather was belligerent. He was in school, wasn't doing his work failing in his grades, quit school, got a job, lost his job, now he was running away. Stuart Briscoe said, listen, the natural tendency of people is to flee when times get difficult. Margaret Mead said, the trouble with marriages is that people enter them as though they were terminable. And so this offer says, don't run out, don't cop out when the times get difficult in the, in the business, in the church, in the, in the society, in life. Endure with confidence and boldness the test. For God's people are so designed to respond with endurance when the test comes. Now Vance Havner would look at this passage of Scripture and say that when times get difficult, a person can do one of three things. First, he can resign. And there are a lot of people, he says, who are doing that. He said, churches are full of quitters. People who say, I go, I'll go, and go not. People who receive the word of God with joy, but because there is no rootage, when, when they're offended, they fall away. J.B. Phillips said, most Christians talk about the difficulty of the times as though we were to wait for better times for religion to take root. It is heartening, he said, to understand that this faith took root and flourished under conditions that would have made a less, lesser faith dead in a matter of weeks. It's not the best thing to do, just quit. Or he said, when times get difficult, you can become resigned. I mean, accept the status quo and take the line of least resistance and say, well, you know, what's the use? It's the way it's going to be, and that's inevitable, and I can't do anything about it. There are some things in life that are inevitable, and they must be accepted with calm acceptance that this is the will of God. But there are some things that are not the will of God. They are wrong and need to be changed and we need to meet them with head erect saying, Thy will be done and as best I can I'll see that it is done. Life has its inevitables that must be accepted with calm acceptance, but life has its inexcusables that must not be tolerated with resignation. Thank God Martin Luther didn't say, I don't like things the way they are, but I'm not going to stick my neck out. Thank God John Wesley didn't say, I don't like the deadness of my church, but what can I do about it? I'm not going to risk my bread and butter on nonconformity. It's not best to become resigned. If it's not right to resign or become resigned, what should we do? Well, Vance Havner said we need to be re-signed. Schofield said, every time I heard Dwight L. Moody preach and, and pray, he always prayed that God would re-sign our commission. And he continued by saying, a Welch friend of mine went to hear a preacher preach, and he preached on the healing of Naaman the leper. It was a great sermon homiletically, but the anointing of God was not on it. And he said, my Welch friend leaned over and whispered in my ear, it would be great if the dear brother would take a dip in the Jordan himself. And that's what most of us need. 
What most of us need this morning is a fresh dip in the Jordan. We need to be re-signed. Our commission needs to be re-signed. We need a fresh touch from God. We need to get back to Bethel. We need to come to the altar again where we first found the Lord and asked for a fresh touch from God so that we can endure with boldness and confidence the test. There was one last directive on how to keep from shrinking, and that is, in verse 38, to exercise the faith that you have. Now, a few years ago, I and some of my friends decided that we would go down to the, get up early every morning and go down to the high school and work out on the weights down there, the Nautilus equipment down at the, uh, down at the gymnasium. So one of the guys got a key, and every morning at 6 o'clock, we went down there to work out. First morning, one of the guys was a hairdresser. I mean, he fixed women's hair. Little old bitty guy. And so we did our calisthenics, and we did a little running, and we went into the weight room. And he's going to be first. He got out on the, on the bench, do a little bench pressing, and he said, put this amount of weight on it. It's about 100 pounds more than he weighed. And I thought, well, he'll never lift that. And he did just like you see on television. You know, he kind of puckered up his mouth, you know, like that. And he, he went, whew, and he just lifted that weight right off of there. I mean, about six times. And, wah, wah. and uh, like it was no trouble. And then they all just kind of looked over at me. You know, it's my turn. <laughs> and uh, one of the guys said, how much weight you want on there? Well, I wasn't about to let that hairdresser uh, outdo me. So I said, well, this... Just, you know, leave the same amount on there to begin with. And I got on that weight machine, on that bench press, put my hands under there, and just, it's none of your business how much I, It's none of your business how much weight I lifted that morning. If I want you to know that, I'll tell you. But I was a little discouraged. I'm going to have to, and, uh, and I got thinking about that, you know. I, I, I didn't need any more muscles. I mean, I had the same number of muscles he had. I mean, we all have the same. Isn't that kind of the way it is? I just needed to exercise the ones I had, you know, put them in, get them into shape. I'm here to tell you this morning that you don't need any more faith. The Bible says if you have faith of the grain of the size of a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. You don't need any more faith. I've had, heard people pray, Lord, give me more faith. Give me more faith. I just can imagine God saying, man, how much you want? You got all you need. What we need is not more faith. We just need to begin to exercise the faith we have. Some of us have never, ever learned to trust God. You know how to believe God? You know how to do that? by start believing God. I mean, you know how to have faith in God? Just start having faith in God. You know how to trust God? Just start trusting God. We need to exercise the faith we have for two reasons in the text. Because without faith, he says, God takes no pleasure in us. Man, what a word. 
God has no pleasure in us if we don't exercise faith. Now, if you're not operating your business on the faith principle, God has no pleasure in you. If we're not operating this church in the faith dimension, God has no pleasure in us. If, not, if you're not living your marriage, living out your life, raising your family in the faith dimension, God has no pleasure in you. I know what we want to do is say, well now, I want, to be, I want God to be pleased with me. So I'm going to give more, I'm going to go more, I'm going to do more. I'll come to visitation. I mean, I'll even come to the prayer breakfast. I want God to be pleased with me. I'm going to give more. I might even start tithing here. You know, I might even, I might even visit some. I'll even take a Sunday school class. I'll, I want God to be pleased with me, so I'll do these things. It just doesn't work. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You want to please God, begin to exercise your faith in Him. Right now, right here. And the second reason why we need to exercise our faith is because he said without it, it leads to destruction. Verse 39, the word means misery. I want, I believe it with all my heart that the people who live in the sight dimension are the most miserable, pe miserable people in the world. You know why? Because they're worried all the time. The people who live in the sight, in the sight realm are worried all the time. What they see before them panics them, scares them. The people who live on the basis of sight and not faith are the most miserable people in the world because they're afraid of the future and they're terrified by the present. And they're miserable. And so he's saying, in essence, if you want to have abundant life and enjoy life, live in the faith dimension and believe that God is in control and you rested in Him. Those people cannot be, cannot be frightened. I heard this story, this and I'm through, and I'm not sure it's true or not, but if you listen to it, you'll understand what I mean when I say it's true whether it happened or not. A man was driving an old Model T down the road and it just went out on him. It just quit. And he pulled over to the side of the road as his first car, the first car he'd ever owned. He didn't know what was wrong with it. And he just standing there looking at it, kind of confused and frustrated and bewildered. And this wealthy man came driving up, well-dressed, wealthy-looking man, distinguished. And he got out of the car and he said, maybe I can help you there. And he went over and raised the hood. The guy didn't know how to get the hood up. He raised the hood, he did a little adjustment on the carburetor and he went in there on the steering wheel at that uh, spark lever. If you understand what I'm talking about, you're a lot older than I am. Now he adjusted that little spark lever on the steering wheel that the Model A had and he hit the ignition and she cranked up and ran just like the day that he bought it. Oh, he said, I'm, hey, you know, great, wonderful, thank you, man. I don't know how to, how to thank you enough. And he reached out his hand, introduced himself. The distinguished man, wealthy man, took his hand and said, I'm happy to know you. My name is Henry Ford. Now, the, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty obvious that the man who makes something ought to know how it operates. It seems to me 
that the God who created you can be trusted. Will you bow your head with me? Some of us needing a, need a re-signing this morning. We just need a fresh dip in the Jordan. We just need to come back for a fresh touch from God. Would you like to do that today? And some of us need to exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ. God has given you the gift of faith to believe Him. Now exercise that faith and trust Jesus only for your salvation. And some of you this morning need to begin to walk with Him in the faith realm, in the faith dimension, so you can please Him. Please Him with what you do and what you give, how you live. Our invitations this morning are three. One is to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've waited long enough. The time for you to be saved is today. The time to come trusting Christ for salvation is right now. Come claiming His salvation offered to you as a gift. Would you come and receive Jesus this morning? Some of you want to come in the second invitation to place your life here to say, I want to be baptized or I want to join the church. It's time to do that. God is leading you. God is calling you. Some of you just need to come for the re-signing of your commission. Our Father, I pray that these moments now that remain in this place will be of maximum value to each of us and that you'll capture these moments in eternity for us and that the lost might be saved today, having heard the word. And that the Christian might be reclaimed. That he might surrender fully to the will of God for his life. I pray that this invitation will not be in vain, but that it will accomplish, Father, the purpose you have for each one of us in it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray, and in his name. In the spirit of prayer, I'll ask you to stand. I invite you to come if God leads you.